Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans 13. As I begin to pray about what God had for me to, um, to preach on this July 4th, um, I, uh, I kept coming back to the phrase that we have in our Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God. I'm getting ready to start a, uh, a, a sermon series next week at First Baptist Peachtree City for the next three weeks called After. What happens one moment after you die? So we're going to be talking about eternity and heaven, hell, and all of those things. And, uh, and, I, and I was thinking about that in terms of this sermon. And so I entitled the sermon, Not One Nation Under God, but One Nation After God. You know, as I think about, as, as I thought about that, um, I, I thought about how I would love for it to be true that our nation was really following hard after God. You know, that we were um, <clears throat> just seeing revival and spiritual awakening everywhere, that we were seeing uh, the people who are in leadership from the national level to the local level, um, uh, you know, praying and asking God, God, what do you want for this nation? And, and we just... We could see this in every corner of our, of our world and through our entertainment, through our families, through every portion of it, you know, that, that the praise and glory would be to God. And we were following hard after him and, and a light to the rest of the world for the gospel of Christ. But in reality, all of us know sitting here this, um, this morning on July the 4th, 2021, that we're not a nation that is following hard after God. In fact, we could take that and, and turn that little phrase, one nation after God, to, to really begin to understand that we are a nation that is truly, and we've talked about this for many years, a post-Christian nation. And that we do not really follow the dictates of, of God or the Bible uh, any longer. And most of the things that are part of our government that we have, you know, on the walls of the monuments and things are just things that are part of our history. And what we do have in many ways um, that do uh, harken back to those moments in our history when, when we truly tried to be, we're certainly not a perfect nation in any way, and we've discovered that in many, many ways um, as of late, but... Um, we know that we're not a nation that is under God any longer. Now that phrase, one nation under God, came, came about in 1954, at least formally on June the 14th, Flag Day, um, when they were added to the Pledge of Allegiance. And there's a Chicago attorney, um, Louis Bowman, who really suggested that the, the, uh, the phrase under God ought to be added to our Pledge of Allegiance because he was really under the, uh, uh, under the understanding that President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address that said that the nation shall, under God, have a new birth of freedom. That what Lincoln was saying was that if our nation is going to go into this new era coming out of the Civil War, and good things are going to happen. It's got to be under God that we do it. Because as you look at the Word of God, it helps to define how we are to live. And then Stacy Ruth, in her book, Unite the USA, suggested that 
that Americans during the Civil War, or during the Cold War era, I should say, of the 1950s, wanted this term because they wanted to distinguish between the state atheism of Marxist communist ideology of Russia and then that of the values present in the United States. And so all of that culminated to being able to take the pledge of allegiance and changing it to one nation under God. When President Eisenhower made this official for the nation, he made this statement as a part of his speech. And I thought it was interesting reading this statement and then thinking about where we are currently in our our United States today. He said, from this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. In this way, we are affirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. When I, uh, when I read those words, the thought came to my mind, oh, how far have we come in 2021? As you look across the landscape of our nation and what our government is doing and what society is doing, what the media is doing, what entertainment is doing, every fabric of society is now under deconstruction and reconstruction. There are really two schools of thought that has prevailed in our society and continues to do this, to help shape where we are as a society right now. And we, we, we came through the time of humanism out of the 19th century. <clears throat> and throughout the, the, uh, the 20th century, we adapted and, and adopted this idea of secularism. Secularism basically meaning that, that there really is no God and that there is no purpose in life and that whatever life that we make has to be made from humans, human imagination. But don't be fooled from the standpoint that it means anything. What it means is it means whatever it means for the moment. and Whatever it can do for society coming after that. But there really is no, if they're honest, and they're talking secularists, there really is no meaning and purpose in life at all. Because when you die you die. Well, from that ideology came another more practical way of doing life, and that's what we call pragmatism. When we think about being pragmatic, we're thinking about whatever works, you know? So we we oftentimes will say, well, that just doesn't make any pragmatic sense. You know, it, it just doesn't work. It sounds good, but for an ideology, especially as it relates to spiritual life and and everything in society, it basically means whatever you want to do in life, whatever you want to believe in life, then as long as you don't break any laws, which to pragmatism and secularism makes no real sense, but because we want to try to live in a society that is, uh, is ruled in some way without chaos, pragmatism basically says 
You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can do whatever you want to do. And, and nobody has the right to tell you any differently. There is no true truth that is not relative. And so with that, basically the United States has adopted that. And, and in some ways you look around the nation and secularism has already taken Europe long, long time ago. And uh, we as being the child of Europe, or at least England, we're following hard after what the rest of the world is doing. And so what basically, if you were to take a Bible verse and begin to understand who we are as a society any longer, it would be Judges uh, chapter 21 and verse 25 that simply says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All of us sitting in here this morning understand that that's where we are as a nation. You look around at the neighbors that you live around. You look around at the people you work with, the people that we go to school with. That's basically how we see life, and nobody needs to tell us any different. And when this happens in, our, in a society, when this happens in a, in a nation, inevitably there is a group of people that will seize control of the society and will bring all of the society under its, its control. And in every place around the world, the people who are going to do that are going to be the government, are going to be people who are in control, the people who can come and say things to us and make us do things and believe things and persuade us to, to, to do things. And they will use every means necessary within their sphere of power in order to influence the society to follow where they want society to go. And if we are going to, if, if, if whatever we you know, think is right in our own eyes, then that is going to be the governing way of living within the mandates of the law. And so who is going to be then at the crosshairs of that kind of philosophy and that kind of ideology? It is going to be the people who stand opposed to what might come through governments that may not be as what we're going to see in Romans 13 as in line with God's design. If they get outside of God's design, if they get outside and forfeit the authority of God and uh, forfeit their, their ability to do what God wants them to do in society, then what you have is, is there's going to be pockets of opposition that is going to have to creep up, is going to have to take a stand because ultimately, if we believe in anything and government comes against that, then we have a choice to make. Will we follow the dictates of the government over our convictions or will we stand on convictions come what may? So by now, you probably recognize that the fact that if there's going to be any opposition to where we're headed now in society, then it's going to have to come through the people of God. Because our citizenship, while it is in these wonderful United States, our citizenship is in heaven. Our greater loyalty is to the Word of God and in particular to God himself. 
And so what I want to do in this message this morning is I want us to understand these questions. Why has God given us the government? What happens when the government forfeits his divine, the divine design that they've been given? And how are Christians to live in this tension? All right? So if you would, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 13. And let's begin reading at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, I, I wish this verse, is, verse, verse wasn't in the Bible, right? But because of this, you also have to pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God uh, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We'll stop right there for a moment. So very clearly in this passage, The Apostle Paul is trying to instruct the church in Rome in this very pagan culture that they are to obey the governing authorities over them. Because the question had come up in the church, do we have to pay our taxes? Do we have to, as Christians who have a citizenship in heaven, have to obey this corrupt, sinful, paganistic government called Rome? And Paul says and acknowledges that our citizenship is in heaven. He mentions this in Philippians. But he tells the church in Rome, yes, you do need to be subject to the governing authorities over you because all authority, remember Jesus tells us this in Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority has been given to me. But he says all authority on the human level, the governmental level, has been given by God. And so they exist because God is allowing it. And so therefore, if you are in Christ, in a relationship with God, then as a citizen in the land where you are, you need to obey the governing authorities. Now, Peter says his own version of this through the Holy Spirit. He says in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that we're to be subject for the Lord's sake, right? For the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, in that passage here, Peter is telling us that we're to obey governing authorities over us for the Lord's sake, In other words, as that governing authority is operating in 
the power given to him by God and in accordance to God's commands, especially, you know, obviously, as we see them out of his word, you're to do that for the Lord's sake because the government has basically two, um, two purposes in, our, in, in every nation. And one of those purposes is to protect its citizens from evil or those who are doing evil. And then the next purpose is to do that which is good in rewarding the people who do good. And so protection and rewarding are the two things that God has instituted as as governments. John Stott said it this way, that the restraint and punishment of evil are universally recognized as primary responsibilities of the state. Now you'll notice up in verses 3 and 4 that he gives a little bit more of what the, uh, the government is to do. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. In other words, in other words, if you're doing good as a citizen, you should not be afraid of the government. But those who are doing bad ought to be. He said, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not uh, bear the sword or wield the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Now, Paul is not calling for inhumane justice of those who are in authority. But he recognizes that God has given the state power to wield the sword And they are to protect people against evildoers. And then obviously, as I said, to reward those who do good. Now, I I love to read history when I get a chance. I love to hear about and and watch history, you know, uh, uh, on on the the history channels and basic other things. And if you look at biblical history and then you look at world history, It's not hard for you to recognize that many governments led by kings or led by emperors or even by ambassadors or presidents down through the years or dictators have oftentimes taken Romans 13 and abused the people within the nation because of it. They look and they say, well, I've got to do exactly what the rulers say. I've got to do everything that, 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 that the government tells me that I need to do. And oftentimes tyrants will use that in order to abuse their people, um, uh, control them, and in, in many places in history to absolutely annihilate them, to kill them. In fact, the one who writes this passage right here and encourages the, the Roman Christians to obey government himself was thrown in jail more than any of the New Testament writers combined <laughs> because he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in a government that had outlawed it, basically. So Christians, when governments are operating in the way that they're supposed to, Christians face consequences when they do disobey. Verses 5 through 7 tells us that if we don't obey, he says, you must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath. That is, if if God is if you're going to obey God, you don't want the wrath of God upon you, the discipline of God, then make sure that you're a good citizen. But also for the sake of conscience. In other words, honoring the Lord, he says there in verse 5. 
So the question, the, the, the question is answered. What is the Christian's responsibility to government operating under God's design? We are to obey the government in every, in every way. But then what happens when governments do not operate under God's design? Um, this idea really came to me <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. We were on vacation and uh, we got in the car and we we're headed about six or seven hours away down to, to Myrtle Beach to spend a few days and get away. And uh, my daughter took a friend and so they were doing what, what 18-year-old girls do, you know, not talking to their dad or mom, you know, the back seat. And, uh, and they were talking to each other and texting each other and they were, they were sitting right next to each other <clears throat> and uh, everybody else. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, my wife was then doing what she loves to do on long trips and that is, you got it, sleep, Right. I look over at her and she's gone. She's just kind of like off in la-la land or with her headphones in watching something else <clears throat> because I'm, I'm not a great conversationalist when I'm driving. I'm just like, boom, you know. And so I, I put my uh, earbuds in and, and I start listening <clears throat> to a podcast. And, um, and, I'm, and, I, and I came across one of the guys that I listened to and a sermon came up and I thought, wow, this is kind of apropos where I'm headed on Sunday morning. And it was a sermon by John MacArthur who's talking, and he's got a lot of flack, if you follow that, uh, from the California uh, governor about them meeting during COVID. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of lawsuits coming up and a lot of different things, and whether you like them or not. I think one of the phrases that he used was very insightful, as well as hard-hitting, when it comes to what's happening in our nation right now, especially among the, among the churches and what we are to expect as we move forward into the future. He made this statement in the sermon. He said that the greatest threat to Christians is the government. He says this in context to what President Biden said recently when he was talking to uh, some of the people in our military. You'll remember, it was on all the news networks, that he said the greatest threat to the United States right now is global warming. And whether you believe that or not, and whether it's a real thing or not, really is not the question, because if it is, as MacArthur points out as well, it's, it's under God's control. So we don't really have to worry about that. He mentioned several other things. But I begin to read Scripture and think about this as well. And if you, if you read Scripture and you see what is happening in our world and, and how there is a, a massive push toward control of every facet of our lives with social media and policies and everything else coming down, there is going to be this condemnation toward any opposing resistance to it. And we see even people who are not followers of Jesus Christ being shut down uh, on social media. You can see how Christians now and certainly in the future must be prepared to take a stand. And here's what MacArthur said and, and observed that they really intrigued me and brought this contextually into, um, into understanding how Romans 13, as idealistic as it is, this is God's design, what happens when this is flipped on its head? He says, when government turns the divine design on its head and protects those who do evil and makes those who do good afraid, it forfeits its divine purpose. In our world today, rulers are designing a culture that protects the immoral and protects the criminal, but makes those who do good afraid. 
Our government has become the enemy of those who speak the truth. It praises evil and persecutes the good. God's design for government has been entirely corrupted. As the society descends into chaos, government will cease to operate by God's design and will in fact become the enemy of the divine design. Rather than protecting those who do good, it will become the punisher of those who do good. We've seen this for many, many years. In fact, we've seen this for the last 60 years as you think about what's happened to those who are the the most vulnerable in our society, the unborn. You see what's happened historically through people's lives in other nations, and we're seeing that now as we're growing a society of young men and young women who have zero value, basically, of human life because they've grown up in a society that has devalued life for so long that what is it to take a, a gun into a school and to do whatever they want to do and killing any number of kids. We see this, it seems like, several times every year. Steve Lawson writes that the death of any society begins with its abandonment of God. From there, it descends into the devaluing of life and the destruction of the family, religious freedom, and civil decency. Now, all of us ought to be attuned to the fact that we don't live in a nation any longer that, uh, that acknowledges that God is um, who we need to follow. We do live in a very diverse country, a very diverse society. And all of us in this room this morning are being shaped by this culture. And it's only those who are going to resist because their greater allegiance and loyalty is to the Word of God that will recognize that there is something going on to the to the point where they will say no to what is being fed into our lives. Now, the history behind this, at least from the 20th century, is very easy for us to unpack, the context of what's happening in our nation. There was the view in the 20th century of God, and it pervaded the church in many ways, that if you do good or did good, uh, or, or were a good person, that God would be good to you. But during the 20th century, there were horrific evils that took place during the Holocaust, during the apartheid of South Africa, during the killing fields of Cambodia, the cruelties of Stalin and Mao, as well as a myriad of natural disasters that basically told us that there really is no God, that perhaps God has truly died. I mean, you look at the hands of Stalin and Mao and Hitler, over 200 million people killed at their hands. Friedrich Nietzsche, an atheist, very prominent back in the 20th century, made the very famous statement, God is dead. And God remains dead. And we have killed him. Nietzsche made this statement along with many other statements about that. But Nietzsche said that when God died, he took all meaning and purpose and value in life with him. Therefore, why does anyone care for human life at all? 
You see, what Nietzsche was saying, our nation has lived for the past 60 years. And we continue to see people living as if there is no God and no purpose at all to life other than what they do in the moment. And so today, governments, including our own, take this worldview and have been setting policies and laws according to it. That's the context of what is going on in our world today. But what is really the driving force behind our nation turning in this direction and being able to buy into the lies that have been sold by secularism, humanism and secularism, and now pragmatism? And I'll have to say, and if you're astute to the Word of God at all, you realize that our nation is under spiritual attack. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture over in 1 John chapter 2 with me. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to recognize by John's words here through the Holy Spirit speaking in and through him that we have as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have two enemies that we are facing every single day. And we also have two enemies in which our nation has fallen under its influence. The first of those he mentions in verse 15 of chapter 2. He tells Christians here, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, what is the world that John is talking about? Well, he's certainly not talking about the people who occupy the world. John was very clear with us as he quoted Jesus in, uh, in, the, in the last several chapters of his gospel. Jesus said, a new commandment that I have, you to love one another. And Jesus clarifies this for us in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not just the people in this room that we're to love, but it's our enemies as well. We're to love those people who are even in opposition to our view and maybe even persecuting us because he says, pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who despitefully or spitefully use you. But the greatest witness that we will ever know as uh, that the nation will ever know is that God's people love one another despite their own diversity, <clears throat> despite their own uh, places where they come from, rich, poor, important, unimportant, common, uncommon, whatever it is, that we love one another. And when we love one another, it is a witness, it is a light that a dark world looks at with absolute awe. What John is talking about here is a world system. What we're operating under right now that, is, that is, is, is influencing our government is a world system that is opposed to the values of God. And we've been living it for many, many years in our own nation, and we see it happening around the world as well. It is a system that is in league with the agenda of one person who, who God created, who fell out of heaven, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, 
He is the devil himself, Satan himself. And John talks about him again in chapter 5 of this epistle, 1 John 5, over in verse 19 when he says this, that we know that we are from God, and but that the whole world then lies in the power or under the sway of the evil one. In other words, what John is saying is that wherever you see in our society values and conduct happening, laws being made, or, or, or things happening in the family or in, the, in, in government or whatever it is, it's because of the sway of the evil one, if it's in opposition to the Word of God. What is Satan's purpose? First Peter tells us in chapter 5, he says, Your adversary, the devil, roams the earth, seeking whom he may devour. Everywhere you look, Satan has a target on every facet of our society, every family in our society, every part of our culture, every government leader, everything that you can imagine, he has his target set because he wants to devour anything that is opposed to his own agenda and is in line with God. He's the father of lies. He's the one that poisons and deceives and all of the things that we read about in Scripture. And Satan's purpose, his number one objective, is world domination. To deceive, to dilute, to cause you and to feel good about being good, but not, not good to the point of being godly. That's what he loves for the church. What does Satan use to accomplish this agenda? Well, he has to, he, he doesn't use, as one writer says, he doesn't, you know, he's not going to use a group of atheists. He's not going to use a, a person. He's going to use the government. That's what you see in Scripture all the way through. We see this in Isaiah. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in the book of Acts. And certainly we see this in Revelation, especially Revelation 17 through 19, where you see the enemy raising up the last Antichrist. Remember, John says there are many Antichrists. He said that, that Satan, the dragon, will bring up the, the, the Antichrist will bring the world together in a one-world government, and religion will follow that, and there will be this allegiance to them, and, and guess who is under the sights of those who are going to die, those who are going to be martyred, are, are all of those who did not come to faith in Jesus Christ, but then during the tribulation have come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to be the targets because they're not going to receive the mark of the beast. I'm speaking prophetic from word, word of God. And they're going to go after him. That's not a new thing. That's not a new strategy that Satan is bringing. That's an old strategy that he's been using since governments came on the scene to bring control and, 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 and a lack of chaos to a, to a society but he's got to use that in order. And we see this happening in our own country and also around the world. And so Satan's strategy then is always fear on society and complacency with the saints. He uses governments to strike fear in the people. We've seen this even in the last 
uh, in the last couple of years and even before that, William Pitt, a historian, wrote about it like this to really give it some good context. He says, necessity or public health, the common good, is the plea of every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. Get people afraid and they will do whatever you want. A fearful society will always comply. Panicking people will believe anything. So fear on the one hand, complacency in the church's tolerance of sin and willingness to remain silent is another strategy that the enemy is going to use. And we see this happening throughout Revelation. We see it happening in many ways today. So how does the church then respond in this tension? How do you genuinely live as a follower of Jesus Christ knowing that sometimes you will have to disobey and it might cost you your freedom? Well, the first thing we see in in chapter 8, and I'm going to do this very quickly because our time is running out. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not Commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment or the fulfilling of the law. If we can say one thing, we can say it all day long, that the world is going to know that we care about them if we love them. We have to run toward people to love them. We cannot run away from them. That's the difference that the cross makes in the Christian's life. Is it fills us with love that is intentional and is unconditional and is relational and all of those things is very practical. And we run to that situation. And that's what he's telling us here, that we're to love one another. And then Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we're to pray for our leaders daily. He says, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many did he say that God wants to be saved. How many were they? All people. That means every single person in our society deserves and needs the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. From our president to our local authorities here, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to pray for them every day. Not to pray for their demise. <laughs> but to pray for their hearts to be changed, for their lives to be touched, and for them to rule and to lead in ways that are going to lead us toward the heart of God rather than farther away from it. So not only are we to love the people around us practically and intentionally, to pray for our leaders daily, but look at the text again in verses 11 through 14. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is, is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in 
orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. What is he saying? What is, what is Paul saying in the context of, of, of government authority over us? We're to live lives that are authentic and holy before God. That will show the transforming power of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. It'll show the same thing that was said of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. No matter what the government does to the church, no matter what we have to do, As followers of Jesus Christ, if we have to civilly disobey as time goes on and things get more, get worse and worse, we have to continually love those in authority over us, pray for them every single day, and live authentic, holy lives for Christ. And to do that means that we must take a stand for Christ and with Christ. Leonardo de Circa, a, a, a pastor in Italy, I was just reading an article by him. He said, the cost of living in a post-Christian century is that things will no longer be as easy or friendly as they used to. The assumption is that in a post-Christian age, following Christ will be tougher than it's been in the past. The church will need to learn to live on the fringes as a politically incorrect outsider. And so what are we to do as followers of Jesus? Love the people around us, pray for our leaders daily, live authentic holy lives for Christ, but absolutely speak out against the racism or injustices or oppression while standing up for the maligned, the poor, and the hurting in our world. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I'll close with this, who was imprisoned and executed by the Nazis during World War II, to be fair, partly because he opposed uh, Hitler and was trying to, to take him out, whether we agree with that or not. And as he would look at this scripture, maybe that was a part of his civil disobedience because of what he was doing to millions and millions of Jews, was also preaching the gospel and did not run from the truth or live in the comforts of silence. Bonhoeffer did what Jesus did when he died for the sins of the world. Bonhoeffer ran toward the suffering of humanity at the hands of the government and and took a stand, even though it cost him his freedom and ultimately cost him his life. Here's what Bonhoeffer said toward the end of his life. He said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of his foes. This is his commission. This is his work. Bonhoeffer follows this paragraph up with the words of Martin Luther, who lived much before him. He said, the kingdom of God 
is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He simply wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you were doing, who would ever have been spared? What was Bonhoeffer saying and what was Luther saying? He was simply saying this, that there's going to be times that our world is going to go in a direction that we don't want them to go. There's going to be times that our nation is going to set policies and set laws that we do not agree with. And it's going to adversely affect families, individuals, companies. It's going to wreak havoc upon our world because we're going in the opposite direction that God has outlined for the government to go. And we see it happening. We see it happening in both parties. We see it happening in our nation where where, where young men and women are growing up in increasing amounts in homelessness and in single-parent families. We're seeing it happen through uh, opposition and oppression of all kinds of people. And we're seeing the devastation of it on our healthcare system and in many other places. Where do Christians belong in that fight? not running from it, not cloistered up in gatherings like this, as important as it is. But we are to run toward the problems in our nation. We're to run facing them and fighting heart to heart so that people might know of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we may never be able, uh, once again, to influence our nation toward anything good or godly. But I know that we can do this. We can influence the hearts of people. And the hearts of people will influence this society for good and for God's glory. The question is, will you and I be a part of it? Or will we remain silent? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to so speak into our lives during this time of invitation and introspection that we will say, God, I will stand for you and I will stand on your word no matter what it might cost. And at the same time, Lord, I'm praying for our government to turn and to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.